Over the past group of weeks, we've been working our way through Psalm 112, and we've been talking about this idea of unshakable character and how the Lord describes what that kind of character looks like in this particular psalm. I think several times I've mentioned that Psalm 112 is one of my absolute favorite psalms to read through regularly. It's kind of a, it sort of operates like a checklist that when I read through it, I think, all right, this is the kind of person I want to be. This is the kind of man I want to be. And when I read through that psalm, I get a lot of encouragement from it. And so a few months ago, I thought, you know what, during the course of the summer months, I'd really love to just spend some time looking at the individual things that are said in this psalm and just kind of preach our way through it. And so we've been working our way through it. There's really just two verses left. We'll look at the second to last. Today, we're going to be in Psalm 112, verse 9. And then next week, we'll look at the final verse in this psalm. But again, this psalm really gives us a picture of what it looks like to become enthusiastic for God's way in the midst of a world that wants its own way, and it works through a variety of important issues one at a time. And you'll notice that in the portion that we're looking at today in verse 9 of Psalm 112, it talks about this idea of the poor, and it talks about how a person of character is somebody that assists the poor, somebody who helps the poor. And so one of the things that I want us to be thinking about today, and a question that I'd love us to just really wrestle with, is this idea of how to really help the poor. And I'll admit, there's a lot of opinions on this. I'll show you what this scripture says, and I'll show you what a variety of other scriptures say. But I think it's an important question for us to really wrestle with. If we want to be followers of Christ who actually live out the gospel in the midst of the context that we live in, I think it's an important thing to really think through how to really help the poor. And so if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 112, we're going to mainly emphasize verse 9, but like I've done each week, I'm going to read through the entire psalm starting with verse 1 and just give us a picture of what this psalm has been really driving home. Psalm 112, starting with verse 1, this is what it says. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. And then the verse we're emphasizing today, verse 9, says this, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to carve out some time together today to look at your word and to think about the things that you reveal to us in it. Lord, we're grateful that we have access to it, and we're grateful that by the power of your Holy Spirit that the truth of your word is being applied to our lives, that you're making your word make sense to our minds, that you're making your word make sense to our hearts, that you're helping us to know you in a deep and abiding and personal way. And Lord, we pray that you do that work in our hearts and in our minds even this morning as we're looking at this this portion of Scripture together. We pray that by the power of your Spirit, 
that you would bring forth from our life the kind of character that represents your heart, that reflects your heart in all matters and in all circumstances. And as we look at this portion of Scripture today that emphasizes compassion toward the poor, we pray that we would understand it, and we pray that we would learn to apply this in a wise way. We pray that you give us your wisdom and your compassion as we seek to live it out. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for the privilege to look at this portion of Scripture together. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll I'll admit right at the outset that the subject of poverty tends to be something that I think is actually kind of difficult to discuss. And the reason I think it's a little bit difficult to discuss is the fact that I think many of us have our minds made up on what causes poverty. And I think many of us have our minds made up on what actually is the remedy to poverty either. And because sometimes our minds are made up about these things, I think it can be challenging for us to maybe accept different perspectives on the issue or even think of some of the nuances that go along with these things. And maybe even sometimes it could challenge our thinking when, when we look at what Scripture says about these things because it, it contradicts some of the other messages that we've been receiving for, for so long. I recognize that, that some of us may have grown up in a state of poverty, and because it's affected us personally, it could be a challenging subject for us to really talk about. And I, on the reverse of that, I recognize that maybe some of us have never experienced poverty of any kind, and because of this, we may wrestle with a sense of guilt as we try to alleviate the poverty of others because maybe we feel shame for not having experienced similar experiences. I think even for the church, poverty can be a difficult subject to discuss for some of these same reasons, but I'll even say this. Most churches, and if you look at kind of the programs and the systems and ministries that are in place in many churches, I think most churches have some sort of program or some sort of system to try, at least, to, to attempt to address poverty. Uh, it tends to work best. Those systems tend to work best when they're also coupled with people being honest about their condition and people being willing to allow themselves to live in community with the church at large and be accountable to the church. So I think those systems tend to work best where people who know one another are attempting to help one another. But quite frequently, many of the programs that churches have tried to implement to try and alleviate poverty or try and address poverty, they actually seem to get taken advantage of. Uh, I have to tell you, uh, believe it or not, in my decades of serving as a pastor, you know, I don't know what you would assume the majority of phone calls that a church receives would be or what the topic would be, but most of the phone calls that our church receives in any church, I've served as the lead pastor of three churches, and in every context that I've served in over the course of the past 25 plus years, most of the phone calls that the church receives are requests for money of some kind, some kind of financial assistance. Most of the calls that we get have to do with that. And the, the other thing that's kind of sad about that, what I've learned over time is that most of those requests aren't sincere. So often it, it has come to light and, you know, other local pastors, we talk with each other and try and figure out if there are problems, how we could even partner together to offer solutions. But we also do that for a sense of accountability and try and figure out what's true and what isn't true. And oftentimes it's come to us uh, locally, the, the pastors in this community, that many of the people making those requests are actually spending more time making those requests than they are attempting and creating elaborate stories. You'd be surprised at how many elaborate stories you get to hear why those things need to be addressed in particular ways. But they're spending more time doing that than they actually are 
trying to alleviate the financial hardship just by finding a traditional form of work. And so it becomes tricky, and I have to admit, I have to confess to you that over time, one of the things I've had to wrestle with in serving in ministry is to not become jaded about this subject because of that, where I think, you know, like you get sick of being lied to. You get sick of people trying to like play games and you think there are real needs out there and we need to figure out a way to actually figure out what's real and what's, what's kind of scamming. So I think we all probably wrestle with, with, with this to one degree or another. And uh, many of us who have experienced financial hardships of one degree or another have developed a desire to actually help those who have a need. I know that that's a desire that I certainly have, and I'm sure that that's a desire that many of you have. In fact, I know that many of you have that because I've seen you do it. And Scripture, in fact, encourages us to do that. Scripture encourages us to try to meet genuine needs. But one of the things I want us to wrestle with is what's the, what's the best approach to take? Like, we're actually going to live out what it says here in Psalm 112. What's the best approach to take in the context that you and I live in, in the midst of the society and the culture, the time, the era of history that we live in, what approach should we be taking? Do different circumstances require different approaches? Um, when you're being, or when you're offering financial assistance to someone, do you want to know if their need is genuine, or do you feel like that's not really your concern? So these are things that I, I, I think we got to wrestle with as believers as we seek to be wise about this. But when it comes to poverty in general, I think there are three ways that I look at it. And I want to emphasize this today as we kind of look at this subject. So first of all, I think there's a form of financial poverty that you can't control. Just a, a form of financial poverty that you can't control. And I think in instances like that, I think followers of Christ should do their best to step up and meet those needs. As we follow Jesus, those are the type of needs we ought to be looking for. People that have experienced forms of financial poverty that they can't control. Um, I also believe there's a form of financial poverty that you can control. And since you have the power to control it, you should do everything you can to actually step up and attempt to meet your own needs. Then I also think in addition to financial poverty, I think Jesus addressed the greatest poverty of all, and that's spiritual poverty. And ultimately, only he can meet that need. And those are the three categories that I want to look at today, because when you look at the psalmist and what he described, when he's describing a person of character in Psalm 112, verse 9, and how he responded to poverty, he starts us off by this, by saying this. He says this, of the person of character. So let this be a theme in our mind today. He says, all right, of that person, he has distributed freely. So I love that. He's distributed freely. So you see like this idea of generosity. We've seen that elsewhere in this psalm as well. He's distributed freely. And then it says, he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. So I love how that, how that particular psalm, how that particular verse in Psalm 112 is phrased. I just love this idea of this person being just abundantly generous, just seeking to meet needs and bless people, distributing freely, giving to the poor, seeking to live out righteousness, ultimately seeking to honor the Lord. I love the example of godly compassion that we're given in this portion of Scripture, because the psalm describes the blessing of helping those who are experiencing a form of financial poverty that they can't control. It's something they don't have the ability to do something about without outside help. And so you have the righteous person, you have the person of character in this psalm stepping up to meet those needs. And situations like that arise all the time, and you've probably seen a variety of them happen to people you know. Maybe you've experienced some of these things as well. 
I think we're all for, uh, familiar with forms of financial poverty that have come upon people because of, of tragedy, you know, just sudden tragedy has come upon them. Illness, natural disasters, unforeseen personal circumstances. I think mature believers look at these circumstances and we say, all right, these are opportunities for us to demonstrate the compassion of Christ. These are opportunities for us to really step up and do something about this. I love the mindset that C.S. Lewis once conveyed. He once said it this way. Think about how he says this and notice one particular word. Notice the word not here, before, even before I read this. He says, nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. What's he saying? Saying anything that you're holding on to too tightly, basically like something that you're idolizing and saying, no, this is mine. I don't share this. This belongs exclusively to me. I'm not going to meet the need of somebody else. I'm going to hold on to it. He's like, nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Saying it goes away anyway. Goes away anyway. Several months ago, some friends of mine who uh, actually lived down in Georgia, they were sitting at home when uh, a tornado formed just like right by their house. And uh, it just came upon the area very, very suddenly. This was really strange. We actually saw video of this. Uh, it was a very scary thing. And even more scary was the fact that that tornado completely obliterated their property. And when I say completely obliterated it, their entire house was ripped apart. With them in it, they were inside when this happened. Their entire house was ripped apart. There was no part of their house. Like You couldn't even look at, at what happened and say, oh, that used to be their roof and that used to be a wall. Everything was just a pile or it was just completely distributed wherever the wind took it. Completely obliterated it. The only thing that was left after that tornado came through and it came really suddenly, the only thing that was left was the foundation of their home. There was nothing left on top of that foundation. And each of them were, were injured. And some of you that I'm connected with online probably saw that I shared a little bit about this. And I know a variety of people stepped up to actually meet that need. And I have to say that by God's grace, they all survived. Every one of them was injured. But one of the things that was beautiful to see uh, in their local context, but even in the, the broader context of believers, it's been a very beautiful thing to, just to watch over the course of months to see the, the church step up to help them in very specific ways, to help them with new housing. So somebody locally in their community gave them a new place to live for a year, just gave it to them for a year. They have a place to live for a year while they try and set things back up. People help them out with food. People have been helping them out financially. They've been trying to rebuild their lives. It's been beautiful to watch God's people step up and to help them. And when you look at what Scripture describes about the Lord's heart and what the Scripture shows us about how the Lord Himself operates, Scripture is very clear that the Lord looks with compassion on the needs of those who are material, materially or financially destitute. His heart is compassionate toward those needs. You see that all throughout Scripture. You see systems that were set up during the Old Covenant era. And then you see how the early church chose to live, meeting one another's needs. And you see the various things that Scripture encourages us to do as believers living in our era as we respond to one another. It's all supposed to reflect the heart of God, who is ultimately compassionate toward those needs. And His desire, again, is to see His children mirror His compassionate heart as best as they can. 
Now, many of us are familiar with Proverbs 31, and most of the time, if you ask people what Proverbs 31 is about, they'll tell you, well, that's a portion of Scripture that talks about godliness, and it portrays a godly woman who ultimately honors the Lord. And that last section of Proverbs 31 does that. But there are two verses right before you get to that section that I think are interesting, specific to this issue. And they say this, right before you get to that section, the verses right above it say this, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So in a chapter that's highly focused on what it looks like to live out righteousness, we see that in Scripture. Scripture's saying, all right, listen, this is what it looks like. If you're going to actually live out your faith, if you want to be somebody that's not just somebody you know, that, that goes through the motions and, and, and says righteous things, but if you actually want to couple what you claim to believe with tangible action, Scripture encourages us to defend the rights of the poor, to defend the rights of the needy. I think it's God's desire that we defend the rights of the poor, notice their needs, and attempt to alleviate their suffering. Many of you know that I'm a big music fan, one of my favorite bands of all time. Some of you will judge me severely for this, and that's okay. I accept your judgment. Bring that judgment toward me. It's okay. But I love the band U2, all right? I've loved uh, my 11th birthday, my 11th birthday in 1987. We just celebrated the 35th anniversary of my 11th birthday just this summer, Uh, But on my 11th birthday, I got my first U2 album. I got the Joshua Tree, and then I worked backward. And then as they released new albums, I got the other ones. And I know you wanted to know that, so you're welcome. (laughs) But Bono, the the lead singer of U2, said something some years ago. And I'm going to quote him. I'm not going to sing what he said. He wasn't singing this. But he made an interesting statement. He said this, To me, a faith in Jesus Christ that is not aligned with the poor, it's nothing. A faith in Jesus Christ that's not aligned with the poor, he said, it's nothing. It's basically, what he was saying is, he's like, I think you're faking. I think if you claim to love Jesus Christ, but you don't have compassion in your heart for someone with a genuine need, I don't even believe that you love Jesus. That's what he's saying. That was his thought. I thought it was poignant. I thought it was interesting. And so I think we can proactively serve the poor in multiple ways. I think there are multiple ways to do this. And I don't think we need to wait for somebody else to kind of tell us what to do on this. I actually believe the Holy Spirit will give us counsel in individual circumstances and will lead us to ways that we can be gracious and giving and generous as the Lord leads. But I think, first of all, when the Lord blesses us, when the Lord blesses you, to whatever degree He blesses you, I think you can just have a giving spirit about however the Lord blesses you, meaning we can be generous with whatever the Lord blesses us with. You may look at your life and say, all right, I feel like the Lord at this season has blessed me with a lot. Well, then be generous with a lot. Or maybe at this season you feel like the Lord has blessed you with a little. Well, then be generous with a little. Notice needs, meet needs, small needs, big needs, however the Lord impresses that upon your heart. You are His agent of the gospel. You are His ambassador to a fallen world. So listen as He prompts your heart. Secondly, I think when the Lord gives us opportunity to speak up on somebody else's behalf, we can also do that. We can call attention to needs and do so graciously. And sometimes, a lot of times when it comes to needs, uh, you know, related to, to, you know, financial needs, there's also a certain grace that needs to be done with that because you don't want your help to be coupled with embarrassment or, or something like that. But if you could speak up, and sometimes speaking up is just like privately pulling another friend aside and say, hey, let's do something about this. 
or trying to figure out how, how collectively we can help other people. I think speaking up on behalf of those who have a need is godly. I also think that at times the Lord may inspire us to organize programs and ministries to help people on a larger scale. So I think that's another way that we can actually live out the counsel of God's Word and proactively help to meet needs. And my heart is genuinely warmed when I see believers step up to meet needs like that because I think it reflects the heart of God. I, and you could look and you could see many different ways, many different examples where the Lord has done that and many different things that the Lord said in His Word where He says that those who claim to be His followers should emulate His heart in that area by showing compassion for those who have a genuine need that they can't fix on their own. It's, a, it's of no fault of their own, and they can't fix it on their own. And the Lord's saying, step up to meet their need. Have some compassion upon somebody. Don't just step by and ignore it and pretend like it's somebody else's problem or somebody else's issue. Seek to do something about it as you're enabled to do so as the Lord impresses upon your heart to do so. I know one of the things that I like to do is to just make sure it's real. Like I said, sometimes I struggle with, with a little bit of a, a jadedness because I've been lied to so many times about it, but when I'm certain it's real, that's a different story. When I'm certain that it's a real and genuine need, that's something that I, I, I really want to be obedient to the Lord in regard to this, and I'm, I'm just inviting us and challenging us as the Scripture invites us to do, to meet those needs as the Lord impresses upon our heart to do so. But let me also address something else related to this, because I think sometimes in the, in the discussions of poverty, in discussions of, of, of how that comes about, there is a glaring omission in that discussion that really, really needs to be talked about too. And so I don't want to skip it, because it, it kind of addresses a major source of poverty that many people don't want to admit is a major source of it. So the way I phrase it this way, or, or the, the way I think about it, or the way I ask the question is this, what should we do when we encounter a form of poverty that can be controlled? What should you do when you encounter a kind of poverty that the person experiencing it could actually do something about it themselves? How should we respond to poverty that comes about, not because of uncontrollable circumstances, but because of recklessness or irresponsibility or sloth or deceit or just the rejection of wisdom? What can we do in a context like that? Because I actually think we have an obligation to help in moments like that too. I think sometimes we would look at that and say, I don't have an obligation to help in a moment like that. And I actually think we do have an obligation to help in a moment like that. I think, first of all, one of the things we could do is pray about it. I think we could also educate when it comes to some of those things. But I think we could also stop enabling ungodly behavior. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean when I'm saying stop enabling ungodly behavior? We live in a very interesting period of history. Anyone else a history buff? Some of you I'm just meeting for the first time today. All right, those are my people. All right, anyone else listen to U2 music? Those are also my people. All right. But history buffs, I think you'll acknowledge this and appreciate the fact that we live in a very interesting period of history, and I recognize that everybody could say that about any period of history. hundred years ago, someone could have said from a pulpit, we live in a very interesting period of history, and they too would be correct. A thousand years ago, it could have been said as well. But here's the difference between this period of history and previous periods of history. During most periods of history, if you were living in poverty, there wasn't much of a social safety net to help you, Right? When you look throughout history, there wasn't really much of a social safety net to help you. Apart from the church and your family, 
or a compassionate stranger, you didn't have many options if you hit hard times. There really weren't a ton of options. In present day, however, as a contrast, assisting the poor has become a duty that we actually expect our governmental systems to handle. You notice that? We, we think that it's the government's job to handle these things. We've accepted the premise that it's the government's responsibility to fix these problems, and obviously that's working really, really well. <laughs> or maybe it isn't. Actually, it's working terribly, right? From what I've seen, that approach works terribly. And when I say works, I shouldn't even use the word works because I don't think it works hardly at all. I would contend, this is where it's going to get, some of you I'm just meeting today, it's good to meet you. This is, this is where we part way as friends, probably some of us, but I'm just going to say this anyway. And if it seems too controversial, we'll just take it out of the podcast and pretend I never said it. No, I'm leaving it in. I would contend that many of our governmental systems that were established under the premise of helping the poor are actually making poverty worse. It's making it much worse. I think they're creating more poverty. And some of these systems, what they end up doing is they financially subsidize the destruction of the nuclear family, they reward laziness, and they encourage crime and community blight. By the way, have I not just guaranteed that I cannot run for election, right? In anything. I'm not going to be running for anything, right? In the back, in the back, they're saying, yep, we'll vote for you. I will get one vote. I will get one vote just from Mark in the back. But sadder still, and this, this really bugs me, is the fact that there are leaders that keep promising more and more and more of the same in the hopes that the unethical distribution of unearned money will help them obtain votes and hold on to power longer. And it bugs me every time I see it. In fact, I'll just say, I think it's wicked. I don't think, I don't, I'm not just ambivalent to it. I actually think it's wicked. I think it's wicked to do that. I think and instead of helping people, these programs seem to keep people poor instead of giving them an opportunity to step out of poverty and experience a life where that isn't their constant struggle. You ever hear the name Benjamin Franklin? I'm just going to admit to you that I have a similar philosophy towards some of this. Now, we're talking about the kind of, we're not talking about the kind of poverty that can't be controlled by a person, right? That's a different category. But the poverty that can be controlled by personal action and attitude, I actually have a very similar philosophy toward it that Ben Franklin once said. This is what he said. It's one of my favorite quotes from Franklin. He said this, I am for doing good to the poor but I differ in opinion about the means. I think the best way of doing good to the poor is not making them easy in poverty, but leading or driving them out of it. I don't know what you think about that statement, but he's saying, don't make it so easy for people to just stay in poverty. Help them get out of it. And if need be, drive them out of it. Because Scripture speaks about poverty that we can control in very stark terms. It often equates it with laziness, lack of ambition, and poor character. Look what it says in the book of Proverbs about it. In Proverbs 20, verse 13, it says, Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you will have plenty of bread. Then a few chapters later, in Proverbs 24, verses 33 and 34, it says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. 
Now, when it comes to the church, I think the church should be known for our love and not for our laziness. I think it should never be able to be said of us that we spent our lives napping, even though the Lord gave us plenty of opportunities and abilities to serve and contribute. But unfortunately, the mindset of this world, it can easily creep into the church as well if we aren't careful. And in fact, that was actually a struggle during the days of the early church. If you remember some of the things that the Apostle Paul addressed, he actually felt the need to address that very problem when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica. When he was writing to the Thessalonians, he said this. Now, it's a little longer, but let me read it for us. He said this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting with verse 6, he said, Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we, we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. So Paul's saying, we're trying to set an example, imitate this. And then in verse 10 he says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. That's a pretty specific and stark statement from the Apostle Paul toward the church at Thessalonica. But many of the believers in that context had basically gotten to a spot where they're like, you know what, Jesus is coming back soon, so you want to just like hang out on the roof and stare into the clouds? And if you get hungry, so-and-so's got some food. I, I think they do. Just ask them. And Paul was like, what are you doing? You're setting a terrible example for the, for the culture around you. He said, don't you remember that when we came and served among you, even though I was serving among you as a missionary, I didn't even ask you for anything. I worked and I paid for my own bread. And he's saying, do likewise. I did that to set an example for you. Because ultimately, he's saying, don't, you don't want to make the church a stench to the culture that it's trying to ultimately point toward Jesus. Now, here's the thing. We can't control how the rest of the world chooses to live their lives. You know, I, sometimes I wish I could, and other times I'm glad I can't. But here's the thing. As believers, we can, ex we can exercise spirit-empowered self-control that enables us to demonstrate a Christ-honoring work ethic that helps us earn the resources we need to meet the needs maybe of, of our, maybe our own needs, our, our family's needs, and also financially support the work that the Lord's doing in this world, and also compassionately assist the poor in constructive ways. Here's the thing. If we actually take Paul's counsel in 2 Thessalonians 3 to heart and demonstrate a good work ethic that's empowered by Christ's mind and seeing things the way Christ enables us to see it, we will have more resources to be able to help those who have genuine needs, and hopefully, by God's grace, we could we could find ourselves in a spot where our needs will be met as well. And you have the Apostle Paul encouraging this biblical pattern. He's saying, follow this. 
Let this be your mindset. And he was encouraging the Thessalonians to embrace this. And I think that this is a pattern just toward a work ethic that all of us should embrace as well. I think even like it said in Proverbs, I think it helps us to avoid a form of poverty that we can control. Again, there's a form you can't control, but there is a form you can control. And I don't think that we should make it easy for those who are living in the form of poverty that they can control to stay stuck there. Help them get out of it by the example that you set, but by also being selective what you choose to, to fund or support. But let me say one other thing, and this is actually more important than both of those things. Even if you work ethically, even if you earn honestly, and even if you give generously, please understand that there is a form of poverty that affects every single one of us. Every single person is affected by this same form of poverty. None of us is an exception. Scripture reveals to us that apart from the intervention of Christ in our lives, we were steeped in a form of spiritual poverty that no effort and no work and no industriousness on our part could have ever lifted us out of. Only the intervention of Jesus moves us from spiritual poverty to spiritual life and the abundance of grace. Only Christ can accomplish that for you and for me. Otherwise, we're stuck in spiritual poverty. Love what 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty, or so that, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Now, be careful how you interpret rich there, because I think a lot of times people look at that, and I've heard people say, Oh, so I'm supposed to have a mansion. Oh, I'm supposed to drive a, a, a car that costs as much as that mansion. That's not the idea of what's being spoken of there. Deeply consider what Jesus, is, what, what Jesus came to this earth to do. And I think a really good way to summarize his mission, when you think about what he came to do, is that he came to help the poor. You can summarize Christ's mission in its entirety, and you can say, he came to help the poor. Like, what, what do I mean? He came to help the poor. Well, think about that. How did he help? What form of poverty was he ultimately concerned with? Well, Scripture makes it very clear to us that apart from Christ's intervention, we are spiritually bankrupt. Just think about this. Take this all to a spiritual scale right now. We were spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ's intervention. We had no true righteousness to be able to offer to God. We couldn't present any righteousness to God. We were living distant from Him. We were enamored with ourselves. We were seeking the best of the, this fallen world, and we weren't really thinking about eternity. That wasn't something that was on our mind. We were just basically spending our lives seeking the best of this fallen world. And we became so focused on earthly treasures that we thought that that was how you lived the good life. You just have to get more earthly treasure. And then we also started to think, well, for other people to be able to have the good life, well, they have to have more earthly treasure. And we started thinking that the ultimate solution for everybody's problems was basically to just throw money at it, as if that really solves the core issue that we wrestle with in our hearts. And then we reinforce that over and over again, acting like the greatest solution to the world's problems is just to throw money at, at whatever uh, is going on and then pretend that that's all that needs to be done. But here's the thing. If the real solution that we needed was money, God would have just dumped a bunch of gold from heaven upon the earth and called it a day, right? The real, if our deepest need was food, he would have sent a buffet. You know, if our greatest need was housing, he would have sent shelter. 
And God knows we need those things on this earth, right? He knows that you need financial means. He knows that you need food. He knows that we need a place to live, a shelter. He knows that we need that stuff. But he also knows that it's a need. It's just not our greatest need. And what does Scripture speak about when it talks about our greatest need? Ultimately, what we really need was, needed was a Savior. And so God the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ. He looked at our greatest need and He said, this is the only thing that, that can ultimately fix this. This is the only thing that can meet this. And so the Father sent the Son. Because you and I were steeped in our spiritual poverty. And here's the thing. We weren't looking to do anything about it. Scripture is very clear. We weren't looking for God. We were looking at ourselves. We weren't looking for his help or his assistance. We were consumed with what we thought could solve it. We thought more of this world could solve the problems that we were having in this world. And what he, what he says to us and what he reveals to us is that this world could not supply the solution for you. The solution could only come from the one who created you. What we needed was the Savior, and so God the Father sent Jesus Christ. Jesus is the solution for our spiritual poverty. When you trust in him, so look again at this verse here. It says, he, speaking of Jesus, it says, He became poor so that by his poverty, so, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And what happens? When we trust in Jesus Christ, we do become rich. The idea is not that we become rich in material goods. The idea is that we become rich in grace, rich in righteousness that outlasts anything material. Your greatest hunger, Scripture says, is satisfied in Jesus Christ. Even when you think about John 4 and you have the woman at the well saying, I'm thirsty, and Jesus says, I'll give you water to drink that will make it so that you never thirst again. She's like, I would love that water because I'm carrying these buckets all the time and my back hurts. And he's like, you're not getting it. I'm going to satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. That's what Christ offers to us. The satisfaction of our deepest need, the longing of our soul. He fills the void of our spiritual poverty. And here's the other thing. He also grants us a home in his kingdom that can never be damaged by weather or repossessed by a bank. And it's permanent. I love what Jesus says. He says this in John 14. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's what he tells us. That he wants us to be with him. That he looks at you and he looks at me, and he has compassion because he knew that the spot that we were in was not something that we could remedy. We couldn't work our way to fix it. We couldn't come up with a solution that somehow ultimately addressed it. We were lost and we were wandering and there was no other option. And so he offers himself. He says, listen, I know that you long to be filled and so I'll fill you. I know that you long for riches, but I'll give you riches that are way better than anything this world can offer. I know that you long for a place to be sheltered and safe. He says, you'll find that in my kingdom, and I'm preparing a place for you. And you're not going to be alone because I'm going to come and I'm going to get you. So that I'm going to bring you to be where I am, and you will be with me forever. That's the promise Christ offers. But here's the thing. Most people in the world really struggle to see that as a benefit because so many people have spent their entire life convinced that something material could satisfy their deepest longing. 
that something material could satisfy their deepest need. Is that not a tragic state of poverty that the human heart finds itself in? Apart from Christ, that, that void doesn't get filled. But when you find Christ, or better said, when he finds you, that void gets filled. And let me say this, even as we, as we prepare to finish up. Christ came to this earth because his compassionate heart could not stand the thought of you continuing in the spiritual poverty that you are in. Now, there are plenty of you, I'm looking at your faces, and I know you well, and plenty of you I don't know at all, but what, this is what I'll say. You and the Lord know what's going on in your heart, and you know what you've tried to use to fill the void that exists in the human heart. You, you, you know and the Lord knows what you've tried to use so far, and I'm telling you, if you've, if you, if you've tried everything else but Christ, great, because what you've seen is that those things don't work, so now maybe your heart's ready for him. And let me encourage you today to trust him to meet that need. Trust him to meet the need. You'll see that he actually does. And I just want to challenge you to just think about that void right now and think about what you've tried to use to fill it. And if you're willing, welcome him into your heart. Welcome him into your life to fill that void because you will discover the void gets filled. You experience true hope and then you understand genuine contentment from that point on. As you look heavenward, knowing that Christ has your life completely in his hands and your deepest needs are ultimately met by him. Trust him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of scripture like this and really think about poverty on the day-to-day human level, but even deeper than that, Lord, on the spiritual level. Lord, we know that you came to this earth ultimately leaving the riches of heaven. so that you could meet the need that we had that we couldn't meet on our own. Father, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into this world to meet that need. We're so grateful that you did that. And Lord, we know, as you tell us in in your word, that many people in this world reject your offer. Many people in this world, will, they will literally waste their entire lives. They will literally waste all their energy and all their, their stamina chasing after things that go away chasing after things that are only useful for a season, but thinking if they just got a little bit more of whatever those things happen to be, that somehow that's going to satisfy the void in their heart. But Lord, we know that the things of this world are not designed to satisfy a spiritual void. Physical needs get met through these things, Lord, and we're grateful for the resources that you bless us with, and we're even grateful for the opportunities you give us to share the resources you bless us with. All of that is wonderful. But Lord, ultimately, our deepest need was for you. And so, Lord, we're grateful for the fact, Father, we're grateful that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into this world to be our Savior, that if we trust in him, our relationship with you is reconciled and our greatest need is filled. Lord, I pray for anyone in, in our context here or anyone hearing the word shared today, that if they've been wrestling with this, that today would be the day that they would take the risk to trust your son, Jesus Christ, to be their Savior and to be their Lord. 
and to fill that void, that spiritual void that they've been trying to fill with material things. We pray, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation for someone. You'd work in their minds and in their heart to open up their eyes and open up their hearts to be able to see that need and that you'd meet it. And Lord, we're just so grateful for who you are. We're so grateful for the fact that we have the privilege to know you. We're so grateful for the examples that you give to us in your word that demonstrate your heart. And so we pray that by your grace, you would help us to mirror your heart. Lord, again, I thank you for the privilege to be able to look at these things together today. We commit ourselves to you now, and we pray that our trust in your son, Jesus Christ, would be genuine. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.